Now, I want to just say to you, three to five was dismissed. Ages six to 11, you are not dismissed. I get you for one more week. That's right. Many, many, many children in this room are excited. They're counting down the days. Some have even created Christmas-like countdown things to mount on their wall. Parents, you're probably annoyed as your children are asking you, what will it be like in Hubtown Kids Gray Station? Well, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be awesome. You're going to learn about Jesus. Hagerstown Church, know this. Our mission is people helping people find and follow Jesus. That's the mission of our church. Now, the mission of Hubtown Kids has to be underneath of that. It has to submit to that because that's what we're doing here. Not just in this room, in every room, on every square inch of this property, we are helping people find and follow Jesus. And so when we talk about Gray Station, what are we doing in there? Well, it's partly trying to fulfill this. People helping parents to help children find and follow Jesus. Now, that's kind of a mouthful. But as a church, we recognize it's not our job to raise kids. It's the, the job of the parents. God, in his kindness and in his infinite mercy, with joy, has given children to us. And parents, you have a huge responsibility. One of our goals as pastors, one of our goals as a church, is to help equip you to do the work of ministry and to help your kids find and follow Jesus. And so next week, Grace Station's getting started. They're going to be looking at the New City Catechism. It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, honestly, I, I know you're excited. I'm very excited, although I'm sad that you'll be, you'll be out of here more times than not. Now, more times than not because uh, there is something called Family Fifth Sunday. And so you'll probably know on months that we have five Sundays in a month, the kids are going to be invited. They're going to be asked to stay in here with us, and we'll have uh, popcorn. And No, I'm just kidding. We won't be doing any of that stuff. But we will ask the kids to stay in with us, and we'll, we tend to have shorter services on those days and, and uh, interact with the kids on, on a greater basis. And that's one of the ways that we can say, parents and, and, and church members, it's, it's our job to continue helping our kids find and follow Jesus, and we don't want to silo them off. We want them to begin and worshiping Jesus with the brothers and sisters because they're not, if they're in Christ, they're not the church of tomorrow, they're the church of today. We want to disciple our younger brothers and sisters. And so that's an encouraging and exciting time. All that to say, kids, uh, I've got you for one more week and I'm going to try to use you this morning too. Not in a bad way, but I am going to try to use you a little bit for the, for the service. All right, so we're continuing our work in the book of Mark. And so if you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15, or I'm sorry, 14, Particularly, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26. Got a little bit teared up this morning in our service as we were singing, and it's made my nose start to run, so forgive me for that. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 26. This is what God's Word says. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, that is the Jews, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, said to him, where will you have us to go? And prepare for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you there. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went out to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When, he was, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. 
And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would, be, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, one more time, we display our dependence on you. Would you cause us to understand this text? Father, not just in some technical way, not some dry way, but Father, in a way that leads to life, in a way that illuminates our, our minds and our hearts. Do what only you can do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into our walkthrough of this text, let me just give you some of the, the signposts this morning. The first is this. This is the main idea of the night. I'm sorry, of the morning and the night that Jesus is sharing this meal. It's this. The main idea. Look to Jesus who takes away the sin of his people. Look to Jesus who takes away the sin of of his people. It's the main idea. As we continue to walk through this text, I'm going to point out five considerations from this Passover meal. Five considerations. The first is this, that there are lessons in the symbolism. Tonight in the meal, or this night in the meal, there was so much symbolism. Pointing back, pointing to the future, and even there, as we'll see in the present, there are lessons in the symbolism. Two, another consideration, there are some who only appear to be following Christ. This is a concerning fact, but it's a consideration from the text. There are some who only appear to be following Christ. The third consideration we'll look at is there is harmony between God's will and man's freedom. There is, in fact, harmony between God's will and man's freedom. Our fourth consideration, there is a spotless lamb. Praise God. There is a spotless lamb. And our fifth consideration, there is power in the blood. There's power in his blood. And so the main idea, look to Jesus who takes away the sin of his people. We've got these five considerations. We've got the text. Let's get moving. Look at verse 12. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat 
the Passover. Kids, this, this morning, you might be asking us, you might be asking me, what is the Passover? Raise your hand if you're asking that question this morning. What is the Passover? Do you want to know what that is? Okay, no, no hand raise, but we did have one. Okay, so we're going to go through it. Well, for hundreds of years, the Jews had celebrated the Passover. It was a festival that actually had a meal at its center. That sounds pretty good, right? A festival with a meal at its center. And, and this meal and this festival was actually commanded by God. And its job was to remind the people of what God had done for them by rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. How many of you knew that the, the children of Israel for about 400 years were, were slaves in Egypt? They didn't have freedom. They weren't able to do their own thing. They weren't able to, do, uh, to, to, to go and make decisions for their family that they would want to. No, they served their, their, their master. They poured their life out for the Egyptians. And the Passover was the way, it was the tool, the first Passover was the tool that God used to deliver his people from slavery there in Egypt. Do you ever wonder why it was called the Passover? you ever wonder why it was called that? It's, it's because the Israelites were, were instructed to, on that night, they were to take a lamb. They were to sacrifice that lamb. They were to eat that lamb. But they were also to take the blood of that lamb. And they were to take and mark the top of their posts so that when the Spirit of God came over their home. If he saw the blood, he would pass over. And those who were in the covenant, those who by faith believed the words of God would follow these instructions, take that lamb and they would take its blood and put it on the doorpost. And those who were not in the covenant, those who by faith were not receiving grace, they neglected to do so. And as the Spirit of God came over those homes, those homes that had the blood were passed over. And those who did not have the blood suffered. They were afflicted. And in the morning, the, the tune of the Egyptians had changed. They had been broken. They had been beaten down by God. And they determined that they wanted the Israelites to leave. And so the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. They took all their good stuff because the Egyptians said, just get out. So God delivered his people through this Passover. And he instructed posterity and the, the, the generations onward to remind themselves of what God had done miraculously on that night with the Passover meal. The Passover meal is so, so beautiful. It's full of symbolism. I'm going to read to you an excerpt because it would just be best if I read it and not try to recreate it. And so from the New International Commentary on the New Testament, I stole this statement. It's explaining the liturgy or the order of the night of what Jews would do on that night that Jesus was meeting with his disciples. They needed a room. They needed to celebrate the Passover. What would it have looked like? Something like this. The meal was framed within a liturgy whose core was the Passover prayer of the family head and the recitation of the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 to 118, by the way. And when those participating had taken their places, the head of the house began the celebration by pronouncing a blessing, first of the festival and then of the wine. 
When the Paschal company drank the first cup of wine, he would make this announcement. And then after their food was brought in, consisting of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, greens, stewed fruit, and roast lamb. And as the food was being brought out, right before they, were, they would eat, the son, a plant, if you will, he would ask, why this night, with its special customs and food, why was it distinguished from all other nights? Well, the family had, expecting that question, he would respond by recalling the biblical account of the redemption from Egypt. And that instruction led naturally to the praise of God for the salvation he had provided and the anticipation of future redemption. He would say this, So may the Lord our God and the God of our fathers cause us to enjoy the feasts that come in peace, glad of heart, at the upbuilding of your city and rejoicing in your service. And we shall thank you with a new song for our redemption. He goes on to say, The new song was the first part of the ancient Hallel, after which a second cup of wine was drunk. Now, I want to just share this with you. The wine that they're drinking is, in fact, fermented grape juice. It's alcoholic, but also know most scholars say that it was cut with water. And so you might be thinking, again, this is going to be a little bit of an exciting night, right? Uh, uh, maybe a little bit of a crazy night after they've had the second cup. And by the way, there's two more to come. But be aware that their wine was a little bit different, although it was alcoholic. That's just a segue. We'll get back in. That's an aside. The new song. What was this new song? It was the first part of the ancient Hillel that they would sing after the second cup of wine was drunk. Then the head of the household took the bread and pronounced over it a blessing of the Lord our God, sovereign of the world, who has caused, caused bread to come forth out of the earth. Then he would break the bread in pieces and he would hand it to those who were at the table. And they would all eat it with bitter herbs and stewed fruit. Only then did the meal really begin with the eating of the roasted lamb. And this was not to extend beyond midnight. When the meal had been completed, the head of the family blessed the third cup with a prayer of thanksgiving. And there following the singing of the second part of the Hallel and the drinking of the fourth cup, which actually concluded the Passover. I hope that was an interesting read. It took up a, a large portion of our time together this morning. But I hope that it really helps to paint this idea of what's taking place <clears throat> on this night. This meal was designed by God to catechize, to teach, to disciple the nation as time would go on so that one generation could pass the truths of their rescue from Egypt one to the other. They each pointed to something dear. Each aspect, each component of this meal pointed to something far far deeper. And I love that the liturgy there in the Passover had a plant, right? Before the parts were divvied up, before the meal began, and the oldest in the family was told, hey, when I say this, when you see this, I want you to say, what's all this about, Dad? What's all this about, Pop? I love that. Why? Because we need to know what this is all about. Why? Because number one, there are lessons for us in the symbolism. There are lessons for us in the symbolism. There is more in the symbolism. There's more in this meal than just nutrition physically. The leader of the home 
the father would say something like this. This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Each of the other elements, they all had their, uh, they all had their meaning to the bitter herbs. They would point back to slavery and how painful and bitter that actually was. Even the stewed fruit that they would stew together, this just sounds lovely. They would, they would boil it down. They would stew it down to where it even had the color and consistency of mortar. Now, it didn't necessarily taste like mortar, but it definitely was a reminder, a vivid reminder of the slavery that their fathers and their mothers had experienced. And then you had the lamb. And it was a reminder of God's gracious, our precious rescue, that passing over. That rescued them that night from Egypt. And so there was this vivid symbolism. In the Old Testament administration of the covenant of grace, the, the symbols were very, very rich. You could move past the, 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 the Passover celebration and, and just look generally at the sacrificial system. There were so many special, unique, detailed instructions that God had given. <clears throat> and each of them had meaning. Each of them taught. Each of them pointed to a greater truth that was transcendent of their reality. In a physical sense, anyway. They all pointed to the fact, this, this sacrificial system pointed to the, to the fact that God had entered into covenant with his chosen people. A covenant that they, they couldn't actually keep. You remember there at the, the foot of Mount Sinai as the, the, the law is given, what does Moses say? Do you agree to this? And they say, oh yes, we agree. We'll do all of this. We'll not break any of these commands. And yet in that same covenant that they're agreeing to with God, that God has called them into in that same covenant, he has provided a way for that when they fall, when they fail, when they sin, they can still receive grace. They can still be forgiven. In the New Testament, we see some parallels. In, our, in this institution of, of the covenant the, the, of grace, we see the new symbols. What are the new symbols in our new covenant? Well, they're baptism. They're the Lord's Supper. Both of these are tools that we use, not just they're randomly happening throughout the life of a church, but they have deeper meaning. They mean something just like the Passover lamb, just like the sacrifice that would be made on behalf of the sins of the people. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are tools that we use to disciple one another. Not just our children, but one another as well. What is the Lord's Supper? What does it symbolize for us? Well, it symbolizes the broken body of our sinless Lord, it, it, it symbolizes the seal of the covenant in his shed blood, that the covenant is sealed. It's secure. It's the guarantee. When we come to the table, and we see his broken body symbolized. We see his blood shed, and that's symbolized too, and we're reminded of what Jesus had done for us, and how he has rescued us. He's redeemed us. In a very similar way to the Passover you say, what does baptism symbolize? Well, it, it symbolizes uh, for us being dead to sin, dead to sin, alive to God. It also symbolizes our being washed. What do you do with water? You wash. The water of baptism symbolizes how by the, by the baptism, of, baptism of the Spirit that we have been washed by the blood of Christ. 
represents our union with Jesus. The symbols that we have been given as a church here in the New Testament age, they're rich. And we use them to teach one another. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, that these are not random acts. They have meaning. Not just in the Old Testament feasts and festivals, but in the New Testament work as well. There's no salvation in the Passover meal. There's no salvation in the Lord's Supper. There's no salvation in baptism. But there is salvation in what these things represent for us. We're encouraged and we're nourished as we partake in these pictures. By the way, before we move on, as we think about this idea, this consideration that there are lessons in the symbolism. Let me just say this. I'm not going to do a whole lot of application. The main point this morning is this. Look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin. But as we make some of these other observations and considerations, there are many, many ways that we can apply them to our lives or that the Spirit desires to apply to your life. And so be asking. Ask the Spirit, how can you apply these things? Well, one way I I do think I think we should spend some time is, is talking about teaching others. Let me just say this to you. The job of the pastor is to preach. The job of the pastor is to shepherd. But the Bible also says in Ephesians that one of the main ways that we do that is, or one of the ways that we accomplish our main job, which is actually not preaching, is through preaching, but the main job is to equip the saints. To to equip the saints, to give you the tools that you need as an under-shepherd, under Christ, to equip his sheep with the things that they need. And so that's what I'm doing this morning. Ephesians tells me that, that I'm to equip you, Pastor Chris is to equip you, so that you can actually do the work of ministry. And one of the ways that I can equip you is to say, there is power in the symbolism. There are lessons for us to learn in the symbolism. And so we have a job to do. We're to minister to one another. We're to encourage. We're to correct. We're to teach. And how are we to do that? Well, one way we can use, one thing we can use is the symbols. We can use the Lord's Supper. We can use baptism. Parents, Deuteronomy 6 says that your parents, you're to teach your children. And one way that you can do that is through the Lord's Supper and through baptism. Teaching them, talking about them every day, talking about the sermon, talking about the things that took place in the service. If they're not asking questions, answer or ask the question for them and then answer it for them as well. In kids. Are you listening to me? Look at me. Look at me. If you're ages 18 and under, really anybody, but 18 and under, do you, do you often have questions about what is being talked about in this room? Some of the adults are like, yes, I have lots of questions. I understand that from, for a couple of reasons, but we're talking to the kids. Do you have questions sometimes? You got it all figured out? I got some slow nods. I'm actually looking for a response. Give me a shake your heads. Yes, yes. You got some questions? Write them down. Ask mom and dad. Ask your pastors, ask your, your friends, ask your life group leader. Ask questions. And parents, use these opportunities to disciple your kids. This is a great opportunity as, as well. Life groups, this is a good time to talk about plugging life groups. Life groups are an opportunity for, for you to get together with other brothers and sisters in the church and to discuss the text that, that was preached that morning or that week. And to discuss the, 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 the sermon that was preached out of that text. It's a great opportunity for us to disciple one another and to look into the symbolism, the deeper, the deeper questions. And so children, ask questions. Ask, ask, ask. Why, why, why? And parents, be looking for those. Brothers and sisters, be looking for those. Now let's shift gears a little bit. We looked at verse 12. 
It's Passover time. We've talked about what that means, what's, what Passover meant to them, what it, what it means to us even a little bit. Well, let's shift gears. It's interesting, verses 12 through 16, I notice a theme. The theme is preparation. The theme is preparation. I notice in verse uh, 14 that Jesus has prepared beforehand. By the way, that's what preparation means, right? Getting something together beforehand, he's prepared an agreement with the owner of this house. Now, we don't know in what form or fashion, but we know that this guy is expecting Jesus and his disciples to have Passover in his house, in the upper room. We know that. And so in some form or fashion, Jesus has made some preparations. We also see in verse 15 that the homeowner has made some preparations. In, In preparation for the Passover meal, he's gotten all the furniture together. He's cleaned it out. He's turned, set the thermostat at just the right time. He's lowered the blinds and, and made it just right. Got the candles set out, everything that they're going to need to perform, to execute this Passover. And so Jesus has done some preparations in a physical sense. The homeowner has done some preparations, at least in a physical sense. But we keep reading. When the disciples entered into the city, they found that Jesus' instructions were accurate. And when they get there, they, just as Jesus had said, they go in and they began their own preparation for that night. They prepared the meal. Well, what would that include? Just to kind of give you some vivid uh, imagery here, they would actually be gathering the unleavened bread. They'd go into the market and purchase that. They'd, they'd go into the market and get some wine. Maybe the homeowner had it in his cellar. We don't know. But they would get it and they would prepare. They would prepare the bitter herbs and the sauce of dried fruit. They would gather the spices and, and all these other things. And they would maybe even perhaps cook the Passover lamb, all in preparation for that night. So there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of preparation. And mind you, as all this preparation is building for this one thing, and it's that Jesus and his disciples will celebrate this final meal together in this room. Continuing to help color this night for you, know this. You've read it probably a dozen times. You know that Jesus has had the Last Supper. You've seen the famous picture painting. And so you've seen it, but you know what's happening emotionally. That while Jesus has regularly repeated to his disciples, I'm going to die. I won't always be with you. I'm going to Jerusalem. You're going with me. It's not going to end well for us. I want you to know that. Well, he said that repeatedly. They've had a really difficult time grasping that. They've had a really difficult time applying that and really seeing how that's going to be, how that's going to happen, how it's going to take place. And yet still in their spirits, they know there's something different about this night. Just like the son would ask, what's so special about this night? The disciples are asking in a unique way, but similar, what's so special about this Passover night? And maybe they can't put their finger on it, but they know. In their souls, this is the end. So the preparations that have been made for this particular meal are special, and they're unique. I want you to notice the similarities between the Passover being prepared by the homeowner, by Jesus, by the disciples, but then also notice the similarities between the new covenant Passover lamb being prepared by Judas. You see, you see in the text there, right, as they get ready to celebrate the Passover, things are going well, the meal has begun, and what does Jesus say? One of you will 
betray me. We, we heard last week how Judas had determined to betray Jesus. He had already made an agreement. He also had done some preparations of his own. There's a lot of work gone into this night. I want to introduce a theory to you. It's a bit of an interesting theory. I think I could get along with it. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But the theory is that there was actually no lamb at this Passover. We know that the scriptures don't actually make any reference that in this particular night, in any of the Gospels, that they are actually taking and eating a lamb that night. Now we know they shared a meal together. And we know they had some bread and we know they did some dipping and we know there was some wine, but we don't know anything about the, there being a lamb. And, and the, the theory kind of goes along like this. That Jesus' disciples were eating the Passover a day early. You see, Jesus wanted to eat the Passover, in a sense, with his disciples. But he wasn't able to do it on the day of Passover. Why? Because he would be arrested. He would be crucified. He would be buried. Unable that night to partake in the Passover. And so the theory goes, according to this timeline, that actually on Thursday... In the evening, the day before, which is actually technically the day of, because Jews, uh, their calendar is a bit different than us. We would say today started at 12 a.m. and it ends at 11.59 p.m., right? That's, for, that's how we count time. But for the Jews, they would actually count the day ending when sun sets, which means the next day begins at sunset. You following me? And so the, 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 uh, the, the chronological order would still make sense that they were doing this on the day, technically, that the Passover would begin and the, the first day of unleavened bread. That still makes sense. Does that make sense? But it, it seems to fit because, again, there's no mention of the lamb. But what's really interesting, whether there's a lamb there or not, we know this, that God was also preparing a lamb. He was preparing a lamb, and it happened to be the same lamb that Judas was preparing. It's the same lamb that Judas was preparing. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. One who is eating with me. Again, they knew this was a special night. Now Jesus sucks all the air out of the room, kind of just rains on the parade. When he says to them, one of you will betray me. In fact, he says he's so close. He's one of the 12. He's one of the guys that are sitting really close to me. He goes on to say it's, he, it's one of the guys that's dipping bread in the same salsa bowl that I'm dipping my chip in. That's how close he is. He's not somebody at another table. He's not in the same restaurant. He's right there. Their hands brushed together as they dip in the sop. As they go for that stewed fruit. He's not generally one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of the twelve. This is the ultimate betrayal. To sit at table with the one that you will betray. This was prophesied in Psalm 41 verse 9. Psalmist says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It's a sobering reality 
one of the twelve, there sharing this meal with Jesus, would betray Jesus. And I can't help but think that Judas, when he first began to follow Jesus, did not see himself as a traitor. It's interesting how slow and even methodical our, our hearts can be turned from interest in something else other than Jesus and be led on to a full abandonment of Jesus and even, in some sense, on some level, murder of Jesus. We see it in the life of Judas. He loved money. He loved the things of this world so much that his heart was turned against the Lord. It's a warning for us this morning. Not all those who seem to be following Jesus are truly following Jesus. It's sobering. That's the second point. That's the second consideration. There are some who only appear to be following Christ. There are some who are appearing to follow Christ who are really, that's all they've got. That's all they're doing. They just appear to be following Christ. They're not true followers of Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23 say this. This is the words of the Lord Jesus himself. On that day, on that last day, many, friends, many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not travel with you for three years in your name? What does Jesus say? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I find no joy in pausing on this, in this section. It's a painful reality that many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. He was their Lord only in name and not in action. And yet their actions, because their actions were something entirely different. The question I would ask, the encouragement I would give, instead of exclaiming, like the disciples, is it I? Which is more of a, it isn't I. That's more of what they're saying. It wasn't me. I didn't do that. Instead of explaining, exclaiming, I would never do that. Lord, I would never turn my back on you. That's definitely not me. What you said in Matthew 7, that's not me. It's not going to be me. Instead of saying, I would never, what? We would do well to actually say with true hearts, is it I? Is it I? Have I truly turned from sin? Have I fully placed my faith in Jesus? Am I looking only unto him? One of the most difficult parts of this passage is coming to terms, though, with how Judas is responsible for his action. That little paragraph ends with saying it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And yet it seems also that God, the Father, according to his will, this happened. That's interesting. I was talking with my kids the other night and kind of came across a passage similar to this. How could somebody, how could somebody be responsible for their own actions, but God also will that those actions took place? That's a tough one, right? You got to love those good questions at uh, 9 o'clock at night when you're winding down and you're hoping you can just slip into bed un- unnoticed. And yet those good questions come. Why? Because that one wasn't a plant, by the way, but it did come. 
We can ask that same question here. How can Judas be responsible? How can he be responsible? And it could be said of him that it's best if he'd never even been born. And yet at the same time, God had prophesied. God had willed and even planned before time began in the covenant of redemption between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that this very thing would take place. How are we to reckon these two things? I think the third consideration is helpful here. And it's this. There is Harmony between God's will and man's freedom. God's will and man's freedom are not opposites. They're not at odds with each other. They, it's not that one can only be true. Both of them are true. Number one, we know that because the Bible says both are true. I'll give you another instance. We won't stay in any of these points too long. This isn't the first time that we see something like this. Thinking back to Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers were no fools. Here Joseph was second in command in all of Egypt. He had gotten there. His road was difficult. The way that he had gotten there involved his brothers betraying him, leaving him essentially for dead, cutting him off from the family and from the land, never to be seen again. And yet now, by an odd turn of events, All of his brothers were standing before him, his father included. Joseph, we were not, they're not sure how he's going to treat them, how they're going to react. And so they say, Joseph, our dad is dead. He's died now. It's been some time since we've come down to Egypt. This is an awkward conversation, but we want you to know, dad said before he died, he told just us, by the way, which sounds a little suspect. Dad said, you're not to hurt us, right? You're, he doesn't want you to do that. So don't, like, get revenge now. That's, what he, that's his words, not mine. How does Joseph respond? Genesis 50. But Joseph said to them, having the power to destroy them for, them, for they themselves to have been forgotten and blotted out, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He goes on to say, as, you, as for you, it's true. You meant what you did for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, many, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want you to notice something here. There are two active agents in that account. Two active agents. Who are they? Joseph says, you meant, you actively desired and acted accordingly that this thing would happen. You meant it for evil. And he says, but God also, same word, God also meant it for good. How in the world could that be true? The Bible says that it's true. The Bible says that both these brothers were responsible for the act. They desired, they wanted, that was their free choice to betray. And yet simultaneously it was the will of our Father in heaven that they also be betrayed. And so two active agents, brothers meaning it for evil, God meaning it for good. Judas meant it for evil. He'd made a poor decision, an evil decision But what happened? God meant it for good. And God meant it for good that many people, brothers and sisters, would be saved alive. 
the betrayal of Judas, evil as it was, he is responsible. And yet at the same time, God meant it for good. And God was intending it to save many people alive. And so it's been said of human freedom and the sovereignty of God, the divine will of God, it's almost as if they are two rails on the same train track. They're going in the same direction. They're always parallel, never one crossing the other, never one turning to the left while the other right. They're always in sync. This is what we see in the Scripture. In a similar way, as we try to understand the Trinity, it blows our minds, but this is what our minds have been given to believe and to receive. And so, much preparation has gone into this night. Jesus, the master, he's secured the meeting place. The owner of the house has furnished it. He's reserved it for them. The disciples have laid out the course, the drinks, the food. But this meal, for centuries practice, it's meant more than just deliverance from from Egypt. It's, It's meant deliverance from Satan and from his kingdom. It's meant deliverance from sin, from death itself. And the Father, God the Father, has also done some preparation on this night. He's done some preparation of his own. He planned before time began. He secured in his son a precious, spotless lamb. The divine trinity before time began, covenants together according to the plan of the Father. The son would die for the church. And here in that moment in time, the traitor was acting accordingly with different desires, following the desires of his own heart under no coercion. He also did what he wanted to do freely. So the table has been set much like it has this night. It's been set for centuries before. It's been sent, or set for centuries after in a similar way. But what's interesting here is we think about the preparation of this meal. Generally, I just want you to now shift and see the change of this meal. The meaning of this meal is about to find a new and greater location. Greater than a small, spotless lamb, now on to the lamb that the Father has prepared. Remember, in, in, in the context of the Passover meal, it's a reminder of the rescue of God's covenant people from slavery. From the, it's, it's a reminder of the spotless, little, perfect lamb whose bloody death was a necessary part of their deliverance. And that's the backdrop, that's the preparation, that's, that's what's in the minds that, of the disciples, that's what's set before them. It's the water they're swimming in, as it were, this night. This deliverance, this rescue, all made available by this little lamb. Jesus is about to make a connection for these disciples and for us this morning as well between that old story and what it represents and what's taking place that very night. What's already been set in motion. It's why he came to this earth. It's why he, it's what the last three years had been about. He came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. So look at verse 22. This is the final section that we'll look at this morning. And as they were eating, the Bible says, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. I mentioned a moment ago that there there may not actually have been an actual lamb on the menu that night. But whether or not there was or wasn't, 
Here before them, Jesus is saying, I am an even better lamb. He's saying, I'm the best lamb that's ever been at a Passover meal, and I am the final lamb that needs to be at a Passover lamb. And so we see in, verse, or in, in, uh, in these verses, starting in verse 22, this fourth observation, this fourth consideration, and that is that there is a spotless lamb. Now, you probably know a little bit about the sacrificial system that God had given to the Israelites. He had required that any time that they were to sacrifice a lamb, that it were to be without blemish, without any wounds, without any sickness, no dirt, no matted fur, no, no gouged out eye, no open sores. It had to be a spotless lamb without birth defects. And the idea is this, that, that a broken lamb affected by sin would not be a suitable sacrifice to pay for sin. Does that make sense? How could you offer a broken thing to pay for something that's already broken? It's not a fair trade in the mind of God, nor in our minds either. And so in a similar way, Jesus was the spotless lamb. He was neither affected by sin, nor did he affect sin. Here's what I mean. Jesus was not born under the curse as we are. Each of us, children of Adam, are born in sin. We are born sinners. It's clearly been stated for two millennia and even before then. We do not sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We're sinners and therefore we sin. Why? Because our father, Adam, was a sinner. And we, he plunged his race into sin. The Bible teaches that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So each of us are born with the sin nature. From the first day until now, and some of you knew, parents are saying that can't be true, and then the rest of you are saying, oh, just wait. Just wait. Each of us from our beginning have been active in our rebellion against God and in our desire to usurp authority against him. And to make this world not about his kingdom, but about our own. And we inherited, as I said a moment ago, this from our father, Adam. But not only did we inherit this sin nature, does, not only does, has, have we been affected by it, but we also effect it. We also commit our own sins. And we do so willingly. In ignorance, we do so joyfully. We accomplish the very thing that we want, rebellion against God, on a daily basis. And the scriptures say of us, there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone our own way. And in fact, not only have we gone our own way, but we are encouraging others to join us. This is not true of Jesus. Not only is his body not affected by sin, not only was he not born with a broken body, but he also was not affecting sin. He also was not sinning in any way. His entire life here on earth was in complete, full obedience to the Father. Never one time breaking God's laws. He's completely different. He's the spotless lamb. He's inherited, uh, he, he has neither inherited Adam's nature, nor has he fallen like Adam. And so maybe you'd say, well, I could do the same thing if I didn't, if it wasn't for Adam, I could do the same thing that Jesus has done. 
If I wasn't under the curse, if, if I wasn't broken like my father Adam has caused, I could have done the same thing. And that's so foolish to say. We are fallen just like Adam, and we would have fallen just like Adam. But Jesus is different. With his body, not one law was broken. And yet for our sin, his body would be broken. Think about that. Perhaps Jesus said that night, This is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Instead of the bread of affliction the fathers ate, Jesus says to his disciples, This doesn't represent the bread of affliction any longer. Now it is a representation of my body, which is broken for you. This is a representation of my body, which is broken for you. And we could spend a lot of time as a segue uh, working to understand what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body. I'll just generally give you this uh, understanding. There are many denominations who would say that when we take communion, we're actually taking the real flesh of Jesus into our mouth and the real blood of Jesus as well. This is very popular in the Roman Catholic tradition. It's also very popular in the Lutheran tradition. I remember uh, reading about uh, Martin Luther and uh, debating with some of the other reformers in the Protestant Reformation. And he said, this is my body. The Bible says, this is my body. And uh, the reformers being a little sneaky said, I am the door. Are both of those the same? Is Jesus not, is he, is he a door and is, he, is his body also here? This is obviously symbolism. And we won't be so snarky with the Lutherans or with the Catholics. But just know this. Jesus is saying this is a symbol. He's saying, this is a representation of my body. Be reminded of it. Verse 23, it says, And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood in the covenant, which is poured out for many. Here we see the fifth observation. There's power in the blood. Many of you are thinking about that old, beautiful hymn in our hymnals right in front of you. There's power, power. Wonder-working power in the blood. That's actually how it's spelled, too, by the way. And in fact, there is power in the blood of Jesus. The shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb celebrates the Exodus event. It celebrates the rescuing and delivering of God's people from death there in Egypt to life in Canaan. And it is secured by the death of the lamb and his blood being shed. You'll remember his blood was captured. The blood of that lamb was captured it was put on that doorpost. And as a result, there was deliverance. The original covenant that Moses is recorded as mediating or leading there at the base of Mount Sinai. It was also sealed with a blood sacrifice. Just for sake of time, we won't turn there. But the Bible says that when that covenant there that God made with his people at the base of Mount Sinai, when it was ratified when it, was, when, it, when it actually came together and they agreed that Moses took the blood and he took it and he sprinkled it on the people, not on the doorposts, symbolizing there instead, now it's not the doorpost that you are the people of God. Individually, and he shakes that blood out and that blood marks and seals and says, this is the sign, this is the surety that that covenant has been ratified. The Scriptures teach us that without the shedding of blood, there is no 
forgiveness of sin. So how can we be sure that our sins are forgiven? Because Jesus shed his blood for his church. Jesus is the guarantee of the covenant. Just as the blood sprinkled on the people and the blood laid on the door or painted on the doorpost, so Jesus is the, 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 when his blood is put on our hearts, it is a guarantee of a better covenant. Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 11 says this, that this makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant. Under the old administration, in the Old Testament, under the Mosaic covenant, you had to be born into an Israelite family. You had to be circumcised, entering into the family. Then you had to begin to follow the feast. That's the continual practice. There's a parallel, by the way, to enter into the church. Under this new covenant, how do we enter in? Well, we enter in through baptism. It's a picture of it. Baptism, and the, uh, a spiritual baptism pictured by a physical baptism. That's how you enter in, new birth. And how do we continue in this fellowship? Well, it's not through festivals as much as it is through the Lord's Supper. It's this ongoing practice that we participate in. And so it's not enough to be circumcised anymore, nor is it good enough to, to celebrate festivals. Jesus says to us today, in this new covenant, what does he say? You must be born again. And the meaning of the Passover that Jesus is pointing to as he raises up that cup is he's saying, you must be born again, and you must drink of this blood. This, this blood must cover you, my blood. Instead of sacrificing a random lamb that we, we assume to be or believe to be spotless, the precious lamb of God has already been sacrificed on our behalf, and his blood has secured our deliverance. And this is where the meal begins to, to wind down. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'll not drink this cup again. Without proper context, we might just think, well, Jesus is going to be thirsty for a while. And he's not going to be able to take another glass of wine for a while. And so that, that is what it is. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus, remember, he raises the third cup, that third cup. But the first cup, what did it represent? The first cup, it represented God bringing you out. The second cup, what did it represent that they drank? I will rid you of your bondage, according to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. The third cup, what did it represent? I will redeem you, which is what he was doing this very night. He's about to be arrested it's the beginning of the, in the night of the passion. He'll be crucified the next day, buried. He'll rise again on the Lord's Day, Sunday. That third cup Jesus takes and he passes that around and he says, this is my blood. Drink it. By it I will redeem you. But that fourth cup that Jesus doesn't drink, it's the one that he says, I won't drink this final cup for a while. What is that fourth cup? cup symbolize? Well, it symbolizes that God taking his people unto himself and being their God as we see throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. This is the promise in Jeremiah 31. This is the promise in Genesis chapter 3. This is the promise ultimately that we see fulfilled in Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4. 
This is what the, the Word of God says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. That's covenant language. And God himself will be with them as their God. And what will it look like? Verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What's being described there in those few verses is that fourth cup that God will drink and we will drink with him. So that day is coming, but it's not yet. Jesus will have that last glass and we will be his people, we'll be with him and we will share it with him. Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now maybe you're thinking, well, which hymn did they sing? Did they sing Victory in Jesus? Maybe they sang There's Power in the Blood. Well, actually, what they, the hymn that they sang uh, was likely well, a part of that Hallel Psalm, which is Psalms 115 to 118. I, I, read, I read through those psalms. I've read through them many times, but I read through them particularly in preparation for this sermon. And at the very end of chapter 18, there's a part that kind of stuck out to me. I think it would be really helpful for you to look at it. So if you, got, if you have your Bible with you, would you turn to Psalm 118? If you're new to reading the Bible, just close your Bible up. Try to hit the middle, split it right down the middle, and you should be in the Psalms or somewhere close by. Go to chapter 118. should be on the screen for you as well. you got the preparation of the Passover. A lot of people working. Behind the scenes even, God himself. And the execution and really the, re- the reinvention of the Passover meal. And after all of these take place, how does the night end? How does the meal end? Well, it really, I think it probably ends in Psalm 118. And they sing it in a loud and kind of obnoxious way all together. Not like we sing it. We sing so pretty. They sing this hymn loudly together. I, I, would, I, I just imagine with my mind that they, they sang this. I've got good reason to believe. They, song, they sang Psalm 118 and they ended with 26 to 29. Look at this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Jesus. Jesus has come in the name of the Lord. And they end that night saying that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh my goodness, this is him. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Who's that? That's the church. That's the church. Not the building. That's the people of God. That are drinking the new covenant in his blood. They just saw the Lamb of God who came in the name of the Lord. And now they're saying, we bless you from the house of the Lord. They've sang this, they, they've sang this hymn, this psalm, numerous times. Bless you in the house of the Lord. That's the church. Verse 27, the Lord is God. He's the point of the covenant. This is the point of the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the covenant. That's the covenant of grace that we've been invited into. It goes on. And, and he has made his light to shine upon us. What's that light? It's the gospel. It's the gospel that's pictured in the Passover. It's the gospel that's pictured in the Lord's Supper. He's made his light to shine on us, the gospel. And now what are they to do? <clears throat> What's the psalm say? Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Bind him up. That's Jesus. He's the festal sacrifice. He's going to be bound up right now. In fact, in some sense, physically, he's only moments away from that. A few hours, I should say. 
He's the festal sacrifice that willingly allows himself to be bound. And it says, what? What are we going to do? Now that we've bound this festal sacrifice with cords, will we go to the horns of the altar? And where is that? That's Golgotha. That's Calvary. That's the cross. Which is why he came. Verse 28. The psalm comes drawing to a close. You are my God. I will give thanks to you. Again, this is covenant language. You are my God. I will extol you. Verse 29, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. When I think about what we've just sang about, I have to say, this good theology leads me to good doxology. Praise God. Give thanks to him. He is good. He has provided us a festal sacrifice. Verse 29, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. His covenant faithfulness, folks. That's what they're talking about. That's what they're singing about. He's good. He's our God. We're his people. He's good. He's steadfast. His love endures forever. It never ends. Again, that's covenant language. Don't miss this. We're coming to an end. This is it. When John the baptizer, when he first saw Jesus, what did he exclaim? When he first saw him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here tonight at this Passover, Jesus was that Lamb. And he was prepared to lay his life down. He had come to serve and not to be served. He had come to give his life as a ransom for many. So what's the main idea of this text? It's this. Look to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin. I want to invite you to into a time of prayer and reflection. So if you would, would you just take a moment, and bow your heads, close your eyes, and just think about what we've talked about this morning. Think about this Lamb who takes away our sins. And I just want to ask you, A moment ago, I reminded you of this truth that's painful, but it's there. That not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven because Jesus doesn't know them. So my question for you is this. Is the blood of Jesus truly applied to your heart? Is the blood of Jesus truly applied to your heart? If you say, I'm not sure, let me invite you to this Jesus said, shortly after he was declared the Lamb of God, he said, repent and believe the good news. The good news is that he has come to take away the sins of the world, just as John had declared. And so what are you to do? What are you to do this morning? Look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Turn away from your sinfulness and ask him to save you. And I promise you, if you'll do that this morning, He will answer. He's faithful and just to do so. And brothers and sisters, you say, well, I've done that. I've been baptized in the Spirit. I've even been baptized in the water. Well, my encouragement to you would be continue to come to the table and receive the reminder of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Continue to meet there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that we've looked at this morning Spirit, we ask that you apply them to our hearts. 
We pray that as a church that we would keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. We ask this in his name. Amen.